Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Open Floor. I'm Andrew Sharp, and on the other line, Ben Golliver. What's up, man? Not too much, Andrew. I'm very sad to report that even though we titled our official season preview podcast, 30 Teams, 30 Questions, we almost wound up doing 29 teams and 29 questions because <laughs> after we reviewed extensively the tape of part one for the Western Conference, and I think as everybody knows, there's 15 teams in the West. I think according to our preview, though, there's only 14. Didn't we forget somebody? Yes, it is with great regret that we have to announce that we forgot that the Sacramento Kings are part of the NBA. And I Understandable feel- <laughs> oversight, completely understandable. I feel legitimately bad about that as well because, you know, we got a bunch of questions for this preview, far more than I ever expected. And the team that probably had the most questions of anyone was the Sacramento Kings. They came in early, they came in often, and <laughs> we just, I, it's mostly Jimmy Butler's fault because we had to do 30 minutes on like the shitstorm in Minnesota. Hey, just take uh, responsibility, okay? You were in charge of the questions. One of them (laughs) slipped through the crack. It happens. And and look, we're going to double back on the Kings later in this podcast. So for all the the raging lunatic Kings fans who are ready for 50 wins and for Marvin Bagley to be an all-star, you're going to get your time to shine later in the podcast. But before we do that, Andrew, it's time to talk about the East. And I'm really going to need you to step up here, okay? There's going to be a lot of pressure on your shoulders because Uh when I was doing my entertainment value rankings uh, last week, and those are up on the website if you guys want to check them out, I was prepared to have like the bottom nine spots all go to Eastern Conference teams. And I realized that sort of peak Western Conference elitist (laughs) of me, but man, there's a lot of really rough watches in the Eastern Conference. And I know... You know, in our coastal warfare, uh, you know, between me on the West Coast and you on the East Coast, uh, you probably have a slightly different view of things. But now is the time to really channel that optimism and start selling me on these Eastern Conference teams, just like I was trying to sell you on the Clippers on that last podcast. Yeah, I loved I loved your Clippers sales job. And so I will continue with that spirit. And I am I'm a champion of the East. I was born into this mess of a conference and it's not just a bit, though, you know? Like, I was looking at the the teams in the West that we had to talk about for that preview earlier in the week, and I gotta tell you, man, I just am not excited about most of them. I think, like, the thing with the West is you look at them and you're like, you know, these teams just aren't good enough. Like, there is a clear hierarchy in the West. Most of those teams aren't even close to the Rockets, let alone the Warriors, and they'll be fun in their own ways, but, like, also kind of quietly depressing because the ceiling is really clear. Now, shift over to the East, and I think the Celtics are a clear one. But after that, man, it it is going to be a mess. Like, from 2 to 10 in the East, anything is possible. The Raptors should be pretty good. The Sixers, like, who the hell knows? The Wizards, all caps, who the hell knows, you know? The Bucks. There's a there's a lot going on. I'm genuinely excited to see how this plays out. Yeah, I've got a pop psychology theory for you. Maybe I'm going to try to jump into your head a little bit because you really react violently against the tryhard teams. You know, the guys who are in that class, like back in high school, <laughs> really just surging as, and doing everything they possibly can to get that B or that B plus. You know, they're obviously uh-huh. not going to be A students. For whatever reason, you're just completely turned off to those kinds of teams. The teams that you embrace 
are the slackers. You know, they're not wearing the school uniforms. They're showing up to class 15 minutes late. They're shooting spitballs. That's kind of your squad, and the Eastern Conference is full of them. Yeah, you know, it, it is funny. They're, like a couple years ago, we got a question from a mailbag uh, asking us to compare ourselves to NBA players. And I think between the two of us, I, at the time I compared you to Jimmy Butler, you were sort of like constantly grinding and demanding greatness from others. <laughs> and I don't know if that makes me Carl Towns. I hope it doesn't, but I'm definitely not Jimmy Butler. So you're right. There's some of that. Some of that is real. This is my gym, Andrew. Every moment <laughs> is a mic drop. Okay. Ben is back. But no, seriously, I mean, I, I, I do think that if you're looking for quirkiness, if you're looking for sort of just strange uh, developments, if you're looking for teams that might pop out of nowhere, like last year's Indiana Pacers, you're looking for the Eastern Conference. And I, I think that it's th- those sort of, um, you know, it's less boxy, it's less like predictable over there. And, you know, almost anybody can be a star because there's not really that many good players. I think for that reason, you're at home in the East. Yeah. It's going to get weird out here in the East Coast or on the East Coast, Uh, but let's jump into it, Ben. And I want to begin, most of this is alphabetical, and then we'll throw the Kings in there toward the end, but Atlanta, I want to begin with an apology Um, and a question from Paul. Paul said, how good can Trey Young be strictly as a passer? And... We'll get to that in a second, but my apology here is that I really let myself down, I let the listeners down, I let you down. I should have been all in from July on the Trey Young is going to be better than Luka Doncic take, and I've been kind of hinting at it for several months now. I I wrote in our magazine, we just closed our, our SI NBA preview, we're recording this on a Friday. In there, I wrote that Trey Young is his upside is higher than Doncic, but I've never really committed to just Trey Young is better than Luka Doncic, and that's what I feel in my heart. So I'm really excited for the Hawks season. We can talk about his passing in a second, but how do you feel about that? Well, I don't think you apologize way too much, first of all. Just chill on the apologies. But <laughs> this one, you're right. Because I was trying to lead you with breadcrumbs down to Trey Mania. I think it was yeah. even like last November or December. I was trying to like walk you into that uh, corner of Trey should be the number one pick in the NBA draft. Who else is going to be able to shoot and pass like him? And I didn't fully believe it myself, but it really seemed like the corner that you should have just been on, especially down the stretch when everybody was getting you know so into the like trays overrated uh, like that was the perfect time for you to run the other direction with it but look better late than never and one thing that i was thinking about with trey it's interesting that both steve nash and steph curry started pretty slow in their careers right like they took basically three to four to five years for both of those guys to really get up to that star level Uh And, and so I'm wondering if Trey has a lot of success as a rookie, and I think it's gonna he's going to struggle with his efficiency. I think he's going to have a lot of turnovers. I think the team around him is a really rough watch, uh, you know, a lot of nights. Yeah. But I think there's a chance he's going to look better than those guys did early in their careers. 
uh, simply because of the changing nature of the game, right? Like he is being dropped into this modern game that plays perfectly to what he's trying to do. And, you know, Paul in his question about Trey's passing was sort of, uh, you know, asking for a comparison between Trey and Lonzo Ball. And what Trey definitely does better than Lonzo did is run the pick and roll smoothly like a pro, right? Like he knows how to split defenders. He knows how to drag a big out a little bit. He knows how to keep his dribble alive, get all the way to the basket, look for shooters. He's got very good timing on the lob passes. Trey's a more traditional point guard in those situations than Lonzo is. Now, Lonzo's got some other amazing passing gifts, but it's easier to build an offense around Trey's passing than it is around Lonzo's passing. And so when we're looking at how good can he be as a rookie, that's absolutely something we should take into account because guys like John Collins and their shooters are going to be benefiting from day one from Trey's presence. Yeah, I think he's really good in traffic, which isn't always true of Lonzo. Um, The one thing I would add is that we shouldn't focus too much on the passing. If like, I think the pendulum might be swinging a little too far in the other direction now, whereas like around the draft, everybody was saying, oh, he's not Steph Curry. And then in July and August, and even now people are saying he's not Steph Curry, he's Steve Nash. But like the, it is true that none of this is really going to matter if he's not going to be able to hit 40% of his threes because he's going to need the, the jumper as a threat if he's going to be able to create space at the next level. And so, like, there are real questions. And one of the things that kind of held me back from really leaning into full-blown Trey love, uh, and and particularly with regard to Doncic, is that, like, I was a believer, and I loved that the Hawks were believers, but there were also rumors leading up to the draft that it wasn't necessarily the Hawks scouts who were who were believers and, and the Hawks front office with Travis Schlank down there, but like the Hawks owners just wanted Trey Young to sell tickets. And that kind of scared me off from from feeling like there were other people who really like bought in on Trey Young and what he could be. But uh but I'm there now, okay? After watching him for a few weeks in the preseason, I'm a believer. And I think we should just point out it could take him three years maybe to get to 40% three-point yeah. shooting or four years, or he may not get there. But I guess my point is that the, the most common comparables that people are using, Nash and and uh, Curry, both took a while to really have that forceful impact, number one type guy stuff. They're asking him to be the whole show down there in Atlanta from day one. So that means there's going to be a lot of growing pains. Do mm-hmm. not write this kid off, all right? Give him at least two to three years before we make a firm development on who he can become. Well, and the Hawks are going to be horrible, but this is sort of what I was talking about with the Eastern Conference. Like, the Hawks are going to be really, really bad, but I'm excited to watch Hawks games because of Trey Young, and John Collins is also going to be really good and fun to watch this year. I think he's going to have kind of a big year. Granted, it's going to come on like a 20-win Atlanta team, but there's going to be stuff to enjoy with this team. That would be really big for them. I mean, if they wind up getting early look at, like, here's our point guard of the future, here's our big of the future, and they work well together, and they're consistently putting points on the board, that by itself, regardless of wins and losses, is a successful season for Atlanta. Yeah, not, not even regardless of wins and losses. I think the goal is to see some good things from Trey Young, see some good numbers from John Collins, and lose 60 games. And uh, that's probably what's going to happen. So congrats to Hawks fans. Um, 
Celtics now. Uh, we're going to talk a lot about the Celtics all year long. Michael says, Boston has so much talent, but roles still need to be defined. What do the Celtics need to do to avoid a 2010 heat start, 9-8? and eight? Does 12-time Tatum lose minutes this year? How long do you expect it to take for Hayward to be quote-unquote normal and comfortable in that lineup? Um, what do you think, Ben? I don't get the comparison between this year's Celtics and that Heat team really at all, right? Because in the situation in Miami, you were pulling together three guys who were definitely all alphas on their respective teams, right? Uh Wade, Bosh, and LeBron. And we forget about Bosh being an alpha. That guy was a legit alpha 2010 every single uh, night. The offense ran through him. He was the whole show uh, in Toronto before he got to Miami, right? So yeah. that's that's a real role definition juggling act where you also had LeBron, I think, easing his way into being the man in Miami, but not necessarily wanting to just try to rip the franchise away from Dwayne Wade. And frankly, Dwayne Wade not just wanting to hand it right over on day one, right? Sure. I don't really see that level of um, uh, conflict with this Celtics group. Like, I think there are questions about, okay, how many shots does a Tatum get or how many uh, shots does Brown get? Does Brown have to be the guy who winds up sacrificing and, and does a little bit of everything as a glue guy? Um, yeah. But this is not a situation where you're having three alpha guys all like, you know, banging their heads against each other, trying to figure out whose team it is, you know? And I also think when you look at their main players uh, from Kyrie, Horford, uh, Brown, uh, Tatum, uh, Hayward, basically their entire starting five. I don't view any of those guys as a selfish player. And I know we printed some quote uh, from a scout saying Kyrie's selfish. I don't think that's true. I think he he looks to score first, but I don't think he's inherently selfish where he doesn't do what's best for the team on offense. And yeah. when you have five guys who are all team-oriented on offense, I think the role stuff will play itself out. I would hate to be picking who's going to have the most fantasy points from this roster. Number one, I don't know how fantasy basketball works. Number two, (laughs) I do think that there could be some fluctuations even from like month to month in terms of who's the most important guy on this squad. But I I just trust that it's going to work because of the personalities involved. Well, uh, yeah, I think I understand exactly what Michael's talking about with that heat comparison, though. I think... What the Heat were struggling with, granted, there were kind of egos in play, but a lot of that was just a, a question of mechanics. Like, how are we going to run the offense? Dwayne Wade was a, was a real ball dominant guy for about the first like eight or nine years of his career, and LeBron needed the ball, and and they didn't know how to work Bosh in, and so it was just sort of like a little bit of a juggling act. And I think that's going to happen in Boston, and it's funny because like. I went up to Boston for a couple days um, in early October for a story that's going to run, I think, at some point this week. I think this this podcast will run Monday, and the story is supposed to run either Tuesday or Wednesday. Um, and it's the, the what I wrote about is probably mostly Kyrie-related. It's like 50% Kyrie, 50% Celtics. But... Having spent time around that team, I will say this. I, I went in downplaying any concerns and, and thought like the idea that there was going to be sort of any kind of conflict about minutes or question about who sacrifices. Like, 
I just didn't think that was real. And now I think that there is going to be kind of a an adjustment period for this Boston team. And they are still going to be so much deeper okay. than anyone so that where, it probably won't matter. Where are the tension points? Who are the people that you're worried? Specifically, is it Tatum versus Hayward? Is it Brown? I mean, who are the guys where you're getting nervous? Well, I think Jalen, for instance, talked uh, the first couple days of training camp. He talked a lot about how much he worked on his game. And the first the preseason game I saw, like, he was getting shots up as soon as he touched the ball. Like, I think he probably took the most shots on the team uh, in their loss against the Hornets. Um, and I, I understand where he's coming from because he's at that point in his career where he's like, he's really on the brink of establishing himself as an all-star type player. Um, and Tatum is sort of in that same category, but there's just so much firepower on that team that like, there are going to be nights where Tatum and, and Jalen like don't need to do that. And the Celtics would actually be, be better off if they didn't do that. And so that like, that is going to be an interesting thing for the the whole team to navigate. And um, and like Michael asked about how long do you expect it to take for Hayward to be normal? I mean, look, like we can go back and listen to the tapes from a month ago. I thought Hayward was going to come in and be awesome this year, and I think he may be awesome by the end of the year. But he is like he's not as far along in his recovery as I would have expected. I think he's still sort of feeling things out and uh and finding his footing on the on the court yeah i mean i'll defer to you and the your fellow mr massachusetts members on the specifics <laughs> of hayward's comeback i mean it doesn't sound like there's been any major setbacks though right it's just this is no, a big injury think... and he's slowly getting himself back up to like you know borderline all nba player level i mean we can assume that would take a good chunk of this regular season right yeah i think that structurally everything is good and I think there's a psychological element of it that is going to be kind of a hurdle that he clears over the next month or two. And then also, I mean, Hayward is not going to score the way he did in Utah. And I think that's going to be, people may see him averaging like 17 points a game and say, oh, he's not the same guy he was before the injury. But some of that was probably going to happen regardless because there's just a lot more firepower in Boston. Whereas like the jazz, when Hayward was on those jazz teams, they had no other option, but to just ask him to be the superstar every night. And um, that's not going to be true in Boston. Yeah. I mean, I kind of think this is going to be a honeymoon season for them in terms of like the tension over whose ball it is when you're going to be you know in position to win a lot. And I think this can be a 60 win plus team, right? I yeah. think that that solves a lot of ills you know it keeps people online it kind of you know keeps resentments under the surface and just everyone plays now if you're telling me that by next summer there's somebody in this roster who just decides hey i've had enough of sacrificing i want to go do my own thing somewhere else and if that's brown or, or someone else it wouldn't surprise me um yeah i think they'll be able to keep it together this year and look if they don't uh, brad stevens is going to be in line for some criticism and i hope you're ready to deliver it <laughs> well, and that's the ultimate reason I wouldn't worry too much about the Celtics is just we've we've never really seen Stevens fail and I have faith that as these problems arise he'll find a way to work it out. And um and by the way, I like 
I'm excited for this Celtics story to run and then to really not think about the Celtics for the the next couple months of the season and probably turn full heel on, on Boston because I I am pretty disgusted with how deep into it I've had to get uh but um but yeah they are going to be really good so congrats but uh moving from the Celtics to the team that sort of built the Celtics the Brooklyn Nets Barack says my buddy Kyle, a longtime listener of the pod and the recipient of all my unaired open floor emails, is a huge Nets fan and recently told me that Karis LeVert is and will be better than D'Angelo Russell. As a substantial sh- shareholder of Deloading Corp, parentheses, that's a working title, I was taken aback by this take. But the more I thought about it, the more I realized it's not that hot of a take. If you were the Nets, would you rather have Russell or Levert going forward? Do you have any thoughts here, Ben? Oh, I do. I mean, sorry to Kyle. Uh, clearly, we're higher on Barack's friend's pecking order at openfloormail at gmail.com. <laughs> a blind email address that we regularly do not reply to than you are. So, you know, you can take our sloppy seconds in your, your friendship dialogue. Um <laughs> I mean, are you ever going to answer for your D'Angelo Russell love? Like, okay, can't he be better than some random guy on, on the Nets roster? Sure, whatever. But this was a guy you loved for years. Some random guy on the Nets <laughs> roster. This was a guy <laughs> you, you loved for years, Andrew. I mean, you got so mad at me when I said he wasn't mature enough to be the leader of the Lakers. You, got so, you called me a grandpa for two months straight when I said he shouldn't have been uh, doing his videotaping of, of Nick Young and all of that. Yeah. Are you still in on Russell? Do you do you still hold out that hope that you did for so long, or are you finally ready to run away from this guy? Uh, no, I still believe. I mean, look, somebody tweeted a highlight of him. I think he hit a game winner in one of these preseason games, and, and someone sent it to me, and I saw it, and I was like, yep, that's exactly what I've been talking about all these years. Here we go. Big year at Brooklyn coming. And uh, I recognize that that is insane and uh, objectively everybody should really start to be start to back away from some of the D'Angelo hype uh, of the last few seasons but I have two overarching thoughts coming away from this email email number one uh, Kyle it might be the only real Nets fan we know of. Actually, we got a, another email from a, a Nets fan who's abroad, but like I don't know real Nets fans in America. Like it's, I don't know of anybody who really cares about that team. So congrats to Kyle, and uh, and as for D'Angelo, like he's obviously more valuable than Karis LeVert. I, like bet on the upside ten times out of ten. Yeah, I think the the fans in Beijing and Shanghai are going to love the ice in the veins uh, celebration in about (laughs) two and a half years, maybe uh, roughly two and a half years. I think he's going to be ready to follow Marbury's footsteps. Um, I know one Nets fan. His name is Dave Sepperson. We work with him. He was heartbroken when they, you know, didn't bring back Brooke Lopez. Um, But I do think like we're in this era right now for Brooklyn. Aren't they finally clear of the blockbuster trade with the Celtics? Like, aren't they done with the pick swaps and done with the the draft picks? Aren't they finally fresh at this point? Yeah. So I think that is your win for the season. I don't think it, I mean, look, they're going to probably, 
you know, win 30 games and have everybody on the internet tell us how incredible it was and what a, you know, Kenny Atkinson should probably be a coach of the year candidate and Sean Marks is a genius. Like that will definitely happen because for whatever reason, everyone's obsessed with the Nets, uh, you know, the lowest possible bar, but they've already emerged as winners this year because that trade's no longer hanging over them. Yeah. You know who I feel bad for is Karis Levert because uh, you have a lot of Nets fans and granted there are more than just two uh, but like seven there or eight. aren't many. Yeah. So you have people who watch the Nets and care about the Nets, like extolling the virtues of Karis Levert and trying to sell you on him and his upside. And then so he's he sort of becomes overrated. And then anytime you ask like a normal basketball person about Karis Levert, everyone just does the jerk off motion collectively. And it's like, OK, are you really we're, we're talking about Karis Levert here? And uh, it's a tough existence, but... Look, sorry, Elizabeth, but um, I think uh, Karis LeVert, if that's who you're pinning your hopes on, yes, you have a serious problem. (laughs) And I think that that is sort of one reason why I'm still hard on Sean Marks. Like, you look at how many years they've been terrible, right? And similar teams who have been in those kinds of ruts, don't they usually come out with at least one guy on the other side who you can say, hey, this is our franchise guy, right? Like, even yeah. if he's not going to carry us, he's somebody we're going to be able to put into a trade package and get a, multiple pieces back, um, you know, like Sacramento with Cousins or uh, you look at Phoenix with a, a Booker. I mean, usually you've got something. And when we're sitting here, for whatever reason, I don't know why we're debating Russell versus Lavert, but like you look at their roster, they have nothing close to that on this this team, right? And that tells you they're going to still be three to four years away from mattering in any real meaningful fashion because they don't even have that first piece. Yeah, well, let me tell you who the first piece is. That's D'Angelo Russell. Oh, okay? no. <laughs> Just give it six weeks. Again, the, the start of the regular season will open your eyes. Um, but yeah, be let's a move on. Franchise player for Guangdong, but continue. <laughs> All right. Let's move on to the rest of the East and buzz through some of these. Uh, but first, Ben... Today's episode is brought to you by HelloFresh. HelloFresh delivers simple and convenient meals right to your door. Each box is made up of fresh, responsibly obtained ingredients from carefully selected farms and high-rated, trusted sources. There are three plants to choose from, classic, veggie, and family. And it takes about 20 minutes to make each meal. So, Ben, tell me about HelloFresh. HelloFresh. Look, everyone in the world fits into one of those three categories, Andrew. Classic, veggie, or friendly. And what I love about this company is they also throw in the Global Eats. You might want to call that the Open Floor Global Eats because they have authentic international dishes and flavors from around the world that are brought into your kitchen, Andrew, to do some cooking. And if I heard correctly, I heard a rumor that you were doing some HelloFresh cooking uh, not too long ago, weren't you? I absolutely was. And I have to say, I really enjoyed the tagliatelle and the uh, vegetarian quesadillas. I just love the ease of use, right? Like you cook it in half an hour, 20 minutes, bang, it's done. You don't have to be you know, sitting around waiting for the oven to heat up. It's going to take you know two hours to dice all of your ingredients. As I always say, Andrew, you're going to be full before you even realize you were hungry with HelloFresh. Wow, quite a slogan. Uh, go to HelloFresh.com and use the promo code FLOOR60. Try it today. You get $20 off three meals. Uh, and yes, 
I cooked the tagliatelle with broccoli last night and loved it. So uh, it is very good. It's great to not have to do shopping at the store, too. That's another big win. Do you want to be elbowing people at the grocery store fighting over ingredients? No, just let them hand deliver it to you. It's much easier. (laughs) Now we're putting on maybe too hard a sell, but I did really enjoy the ingredients they sent because they're like certain things i just don't necessarily know how to buy like certain like certain spices and uh stuff that they they send in in their little bundles so check it out and with that ben let's get back into it let's do it hello fresh all right the charlotte hornets ben uh john says after watching charlotte pass on donovan mitchell for malik monk i'm trying as hard as i can to be optimistic what do you guys expect from Malik Monk and Mikhail Bridges? What's Charlotte's best case scenario? Well, first of all, I think it's Miles Bridges that they drafted, who should be a lot more fun than Mikhail Bridges this year. So that's some good news off the top. Um, the Donovan Mitchell thing I forget about. I always look at Denver as being the team that screwed up the Donovan Mitchell situation, but Detroit and Charlotte both deserve a lot of recognition themselves. Uh, I don't know. Do you have good things to say about the Hornets? I don't really see it with them. Look, I told you you had to be the optimistic one, Andrew. Come on. (laughs) Come on. Uh, No, I think what you're going to see, I would guess, is that the small cluster of Hornets fans that are out there are going to wind up feeling like they need to campaign for Malik Monk and Bridges to get more playing time. Because when you look at sort of the veteran guys that are are likely going to be playing a lot of minutes for them, there's just a perpetual underwhelming sensation to watching these guys play, right? And I think that Mm -hmm. it's going to be very easy on a team that's not going anywhere yet again to just really want to accelerate the roles that these guys are going to get. And I'm fascinated to see how does a first time head coach and James Borrego manage that, right? Like he's not exactly like on, you know, firm footing here with his first job. Like, is he going to default to playing a lot of his, uh, you know, his veterans, like the majority of the minutes and he winds up burying some of these guys more than they should. Or does he understand that like this team needs a little pop, it needs a little energy and these guys can bring it. I mean, I think with Monk, uh, you've got some, you know, dynamic stuff in terms of, you know, creation and, and instant offense. And with Bridges, I mean, this guy was, you know, trending at multiple times during the post, uh, the preseason just for his high flying act, right? So it's like yeah. they need those kinds of things because you know Batum has been a pretty blah player. Obviously, you know, you've been making fun of Marvin Williams for five years in terms of what he's doing, uh, and then even like the idea of running out Tony Parker for you know major Dude. minutes is pretty rough. It's tough. The Tony Parker element, like, I'm happy that he's getting paid. And this is a nice little golden parachute for him. Uh, But, you know, every time he's out there, I'm depressed for him. I'm depressed for Hornets fans who have to, like, kind of feign enthusiasm for the ghost of Tony Parker. And the whole thing, like, that roster, I mean, you know... Cody Zeller is is it Cody Zeller or Tyler Zeller that they have? It's definitely Cody. Come on, like he, he's lost <laughs> his hair, but he still can play basketball. He's the good Zeller. It's a little tough to get excited about any of it. I think the best case scenario for Charlotte this year is to pawn Kemba Walker off on a team that will give up like a mid first round pick for him and uh, maybe a couple other pieces that you can build with. 
I will say, I'm not right about a lot of things, but if you go back to our podcast after the 2017 draft, I was vehement that the Kings did not make a mistake by not taking Malik Monk to pair with De'Aaron Fox, and they were smart to trade back and and pick up two first-round picks and take a flyer on Harry Giles. And uh, I feel pretty good about how that take has aged over the last two years. No, I'm with you. I mean, it really helps that Monk basically didn't play as a rookie, so that that's always nice. <laughs> well, did, did he not play, or was he not playable? I don't know. Who who can say? I think um, it was a little from column A and a little bit from column B, but I I think I agree with you at the time, and I yeah, I would say you've been vindicated to this point, and I don't think there's a huge chance that Monk is going to be making you look bad this season, uh, you know, really at all. Um, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. It's going to be interesting, too, with their front office, like, the latter days of the Mitch Kupchak tenure with the Lakers were not great at all. And I don't know whether that was Kupchak or whether that was Jim Buss kind of taking the wheel over the final couple years of Kupchak's tenure, but it was. It was a complete mess. I just think that when everyone's, all the, the Hornets fans have been on mic for like being too blindly loyal to Carolina family members. And then he just like <laughs> scoops up Mitch Kupchak, right? Like he made kind of an inspired hire with Rich Cho. Hey, we're going like the the super analytical route. Let's see how that works out. It didn't really work out. And then he's like, yeah. "All right, I dabbled with that. I gave, I, I threw one bone to like you know all of my critics. Now I'm going to bring it back with Carolina Blue, like the most deepest, like old school <laughs> Carolina Blue that I could find. Like apparently, you know, I guess at least he didn't put like James Worthy like straight from like the Lakers like studio show right into the GM spot there but still like I would be a move that I would not be feeling great about uh, if I was a Hornets fans and I would be very skeptical about how Kupchak is going to like reshape this roster or even manage a Kemba trade right like those things would be making me very nervous yeah uh moving on to Chicago Liam says if Jabari Parker starts well at the four and Portis wants $16 million per year, it makes sense to trade Bobby. Who could use the floor-spreading power forward and what could we get back? Number two, is the backup point guard depth of Cameron Payne and Archie Dignaco, I don't <laughs> that's the dude from Villanova, is that the worst backup point guard rotation in NBA history? And three, what's more likely the eighth seed or a bottom three record in the league. Uh, what do you think, Ben? I mean, I like lots of questions there from Liam, but like his first premise was if Jabari starts well at the four, I, I, I don't see that. Like, I, I feel like Jabari was cast as like the next Paul Pierce, right? When he came in from the draft, I feel like he's closer to the jump Paul Pierce than he is to all-star Paul Pierce already. Yeah. I mean, some of that is obviously injury related, but Man, he's tough to watch. And I kind of feel like when they put together their summer plan, uh, you know, whether it's Jabari, Zach Levine, whatever other moves they made, and they spent an awful lot of money this summer on these guys, the only explanation is that they were just sick of Fred Hoiberg still being the mild-mannered coach, and they are just trying to completely drive him insane. And, like, it was the express purpose of basically breaking him out of his shell and losing his mind. I have no other way that I, when I look at their their aggregate of moves, assembling a roster that's basically entirely composed of offense-only players and Wendell Carter Jr. and, I guess, Chris Dunn, 
that you would think it would be successful, that you would think it would be worth that money, that you would think it would resemble some sort of a long-term plan. It just blows my mind. Dude, it's going to be a disaster. I, I really think everyone should prepare, and we'll talk about the Kings later in the podcast, but like, I think the Bulls are going to be sort of the Kings of the East. Maybe they won't be quite that bad, but I mean, I, the Jabari thing made no sense. And look, the Hoiberg question is a little bit more complicated because the front office there has a lot of equity in Hoiberg. And so I like... It's hard if you're Gar or Pax to, to go to ownership and say, "Yeah, it's time to move on from Hoiberg." It's this he it's his fault, not ours. Like, I don't know. They were the ones who forced Tibbs out in the first place and and brought in Hoiberg as like the answer and the solution and the guy who who was going to sort of anchor the future. And um, in that, like, if they have that conversation, I, the ownership may just say, "Look, like." I'm going to get rid of everybody. And that's probably best for Chicago if that's how it plays out. Um, But in the meantime, Jabari shouldn't be playing for them. I think that they wouldn't be nearly as ghastly if Jabari played like 15 to 20 minutes a game. But I think he's going to get 30 to 35 minutes a game for some reason. Can we also say that the Lowry injury is like right there with the DeJounte injury in terms of like the soul sucking, like, oh, that's just so brutal. Like, obviously, it's not as long term, but any excitement you had about Chicago coming into this season, like any hope or like rosy optimism, I think he even might have mentioned like an eight seed playoff run, which is hilarious to think about. But like any of that stuff went straight out the window when Lowry gets injured right off the bat, didn't it? Yeah. I mean, it was also like DeJounte, a blow to my personal brand um, and something that I'm struggling with. Uh, But Lowry could, that's a good point. Lowry could come back in December or January and that could make this a little bit more fun. But it's just the the glimpses of Bulls games that I've seen throughout the preseason. I'm just like, this is such a shit show. Why did anyone ever sign off on this? Come on. Uh, And I guess that's kind of where the Bulls have been for three or four years now. So, um yeah, moving I, on though well though I, I mean wouldn't you say that like unless you're trading portis to dana white you're not getting anything meaningful in return like there's nobody <laughs> else who's, who's gonna be looking to part with an asset for him yeah well who could use a floor spreading power forward who's not actually a very good shooter might punch a teammate in the face and uh apparently wants to make 16 million dollars a year like i don't know man good luck with that uh they could like look they could find someone like houston or milwaukee or okc to take a chance on portis or half a year of portis but um it's tough sometimes i wonder with these questioners if they just make these scenarios up in their head to just see if they can make us like rip them or like laugh at them (laughs) liam if that's what you were doing congratulations you succeeded if that's not what you were doing my bad for making fun of some of these questions but um definitely lower your expectations here it's gonna hang on for the ride okay Cavs. uh another interesting scenario here Dave says, why can't Jetty Osmond become a most improved player candidate and fringe all-star? Here's why it can happen. He had a really strong showing with a Turkish national team. He was quietly dominant in summer league, making shots all over the floor, rebounding, even bringing the ball up and distributing. He was the fourth best, or wait, 
who was the fourth best player to cho- chosen to run with the three best small forwards in the league and possibly the league's three best players? Jetty. There he was with LeBron, KD, and Kawhi in LA this summer. He was accepted for the, in that group, even if it was only for a day. And then four, Oladipo credits his rise to seeing Westbrook up close for a year. Jetty grew very close with LeBron uh, throughout last season. I Look, this... I do feel bad for the Cavs fans who are sincerely excited about Jetty Osman because this is kind of where things are at in Cleveland right now. Um, I don't, I, Jetty Osman is sort of in the Karis Levert category for me where like people get a little too excited and then there's a temptation to be a little too mean. I like, do you think he's a starter? Well, I've had this conversation with a bunch of national writers over the last couple of months, just at various points along the way, summer league, preseason. And there, it always goes something like, look, I would never say this publicly. And I don't want to like run the risk of being accused as a, as a coastal elite, but I am so glad we don't have to go back to Cleveland for the finals. And that's just, that conversation has happened so many times to me. And I will say this, I pretty much agree with all of that. Like I'm not crying over not going back to Cleveland, but I will miss the very awkward media on coach interactions. That's always seemed to take place in Cleveland. And I've already mentioned like LeBron trashing David Blatt's uh, play call previously, but last year, the key media on coach drama to me, came during the finals when I believe a Turkish reporter was just like hectoring Ty Lu about like not starting <laughs> Chetty. <laughs> like basically like, why aren't you letting Chetty save this day? Like, are you really going to allow your team to be swept because you haven't built this whole show around Chetty? Chetty's as good as LeBron. I mean, I'm exaggerating slightly, but not really. I mean, it was like very forceful questions, multiple follow-ups. And, you know, Ty Lue is just like kind of sitting there. He doesn't really say anything in, in most press conferences anyway. He keeps it kind of by the book, but he's all looking around for help. Like, what are you talking about? I think that reporter might be Dave with this question. Because uh, <laughs> as far as I can tell, he's saying that Chetty's going to be the fourth best player in the NBA. Yeah. Um, and who knows? You know, no, he said fringe all-star, which is Ugh. nearly as wild. But... Um... No, I think he'll play minutes. Uh, He'll be in the rotation. He'll be somebody who puts a smile on your face because he plays with great energy and pop and he brings it every single night. He will be a fan favorite. I mean, I feel like he's more like Turkish Della Vadova than he is Turkish LeBron. I don't think that's any any major slight. Um, But kudos for your standing, Dave. This was impressive. (laughs) You know what, man? I'm laughing on the other end here because I now understand completely what you were talking about with the the, the idea that the East is just too depressing and too, See? Like, too bleak to even talk about. It's gotten pretty real here with the Bulls, Hornets, Cavs stretch, and the Pistons are another one. Jake says, I noticed my Pistons never get discussed. We got the coach of the year from last year. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness drummond is arguably the most underappreciated guy in the league nope and if blake griffin and reggie jackson stay healthy i really think we can make a push for the playoffs in your minds what is the highest ceiling for the pistons this season i could see a version of this season in which the pistons finish 
like sixth, I guess. I think the highest ceiling. It's funny because Barack uh, sent a, like a six pack of additional questions in case we needed anything for the mailbag. And he threw out the idea of the Pistons trading Drummond for Otto Porter. And that, to me, I think is the best case scenario for their season. Trading Drummond for a useful wing and seeing what you can do from there would be awesome for them. Are you just licking your lips at the idea of a Drummond-Dwight Twin Towers? That sounds <laughs> fantastic and so no. modern. That sounds Let brilliant. Let me be very, very clear. That is not a good idea for the Washington Wizards. But I do think that, like... Every team that's kind of in the middle of the league should be looking to make a play for Otto Porter because the Wizards are willing to listen, and I think he has a higher upside than we've seen in Washington. Yeah, I mean, when I look at Detroit, first of all, Jake, amazing that you're still a Pistons fan after all of this, so congratulations. And this is not lip service. You have a chance to make the playoffs this year. It's definitely possible without a major shakeup trade with this same group. Um the the main X factors, as you've identified, it's health for Reggie and health for Blake. And I would actually say Reggie's health, even though he's not as good of a player as Blake, might actually be more important. Like you know, when he's yeah. on the court, they've tended to play, you know, pretty uh, not substantially above 500, but at least clearly above 500. And that's really all it's going to take to get into one of those last couple of, uh, you know, seven or eight spots in the Eastern Conference. I guess the bigger question is like, is that even really a successful season? I mean, I guess it is. Like, congratulations if you do it. You can at least say you made a good hire with Dwayne Casey if that's how it plays out. But um, that's still quite depressing and would probably lead to, you know, a first-round sweep or maybe, uh, you know, a loss in five games. So that's your best-case scenario in my view. I do like this idea of, of Coach of the Year Dwayne Casey coming to Detroit because if he's known for anything in the NBA, and I think that he's actually still pretty underappreciated overall, it was nice to see him get that Coach of the Year award last year. He's known for reaching dif- difficult personalities, right? Like he's like uh-huh. the Lowry whisperer. He's the guy who sort of molded DeRozan a little bit. I think that's kind of what his rep has become as a coach. And now they're just cranking the difficulty level on that up <laughs> as high as it gets. It's like, okay, you can reach players. You're the whisperer. Go ahead and try to reach Reggie Jackson, you know, root canal Reggie. Try to reach him. Try to reach Blake Griffin, who got completely blindsided and spent all summer making, like, stand-up comedy specials where he just basically took shots at the Clippers for trading him because he obviously still wanted to be living in L.A. And then try to reach Drummond, who's, like, refuses to shoot, you know, underhand free throws, even though he definitely should, and is, like, spent all summer working on his three-point shot, even though he doesn't have touch from four feet. Like, good luck reaching those guys. You know, what I would say about the Pistons in general is I would like this team a lot more, and I would be, like, leading the charge for Blake Griffin having a comeback year this season if Andre Drummond weren't there. I think the fit with Drummond and Blake is bad. It was bad when they traded for him. And it's just, it makes it hard to get excited about this team. I I like Reggie Bullock a lot as well. uh, But it just, the whole mix is kind of a a bummer. Um, The Pacers. Patrick, why do you expect the Pacers to be worse this season? I'm not asking for generic praise, but come on. Giannis Inc. can't do it all. And then Grant says, in a league that's going smaller and smaller, two of the top three players in Indiana are best at the center position. How should the Pacers handle this situation? 
What do you think? I think the the two big men issue is pretty real for them as well. Yeah, I think, I mean, in terms of why they might regress, they were really good in close games last year. And then Oladipo was just lights out start to finish. And so when we start to think, okay, can teams sort of adjust to what they tried to do? You know, it's, it's harder to do it the second time around when people are ready for it. And even if he regresses by like five or 10% compared to last year, that's going to make a meaningful difference because he was just that important to like everything they did, both offensively and defensively. I'm pretty into this pairing of Sabonis and Turner, like not playing them together, but like letting them basically like fight for the right to be your big man of the future. And like, I think that question should basically be solved by the end of this season. Like I would be ready to move on from one of those two guys after this year and just basically like it's your job to be the guy who we're going to use they're both very talented they continue to improve um i think they can both be modern bigs you know at least well enough um i'm just not sure they're ever going to be able to play together and i think that one of them if they were kind of you know stuck into like an all time or all the time reserve role you just wouldn't be getting maximum value from them so uh, i kind of look at this year as maybe a choice between those two players for them uh, but I also kind of like what they did around the edges. I mean, Tyreek Evans should be helpful. Um, they definitely struggled when Oladipo was off the court to continue to get quality contributions offensively. Evans should kind of help smooth that out a little bit. Um, you know, everything they did on paper made sense. I just think that they ultimately still don't have that much talent. I think that we mm-hmm. gave them a little bit more credit f- uh, than they deserved because everything broke beautifully for them last season. I also think that they got a lot of credit for pushing a terrible Cavs team to seven games, and uh, and we all may be kind of overreacting to how far along they actually were last year. I think that they played hard and still are kind of a piece or two short. But look, they could f- finish anywhere from third to sixth or seventh, and I wouldn't be surprised. So. Um, yeah, there's I, certainly I, room I, for them to have a great year. I don't see third. Uh, I would I would bump those down a little bit too, but I, I think you're right. Like They're a solid playoff team. I, I don't really see a scenario unless Oladipo gets hurt for a long stretch where their regression winds up being like catastrophic. Like I think that they've, they've comfortably put them into that playoff conversation. Okay, well, moving on. But first... Today's pod is also brought to you by Robinhood, which is an investing app that lets you buy and sell stocks, options, and cryptos, all commission-free. They are striving to make financial services work for everyone, not just rich people. Not, it's a non-intimidating way for stock market newcomers to invest for the first time with true confidence. It's simple, it's intuitive, it has clear design with data presented in an easy-to-digest way. If you're looking to get into the market, Robinhood is a great place to start. Are you looking to get in, Ben? Oh, I am in. I'm already, I've been into the market, Andrew. I think that there's this stereotype out there that says, oh, you have to be wearing a $5,000 suit and live on Wall Street to make money on the stock market. And I think what Robinhood's trying to get at is everyone smart podcast listeners like the open floor audience can get in on some of this action, right? What's great about Robinhood, no commission fees. Lots of brokerages will charge up to $10 for every trade. So congratulations. You think you're winning on a trade, but they're actually just kind of taking money off the top. Robinhood doesn't do that. They don't charge commission fees. You keep all of your profits. 
That's awesome. They also have very easy to understand charts and market data. So if you want to do a little research, if you want to dig in like you might for your fantasy team, Andrew, or I might for my top 100 rankings, if you want to dig in, their app will help you do that. Load it up on your smartphone. Very, very simple. Uh, You can build a portfolio. You keep it all organized in one place. It's really all you need to get going on your uh, you know, your stock market hopes and dreams. There you go. Robinhood is giving listeners a free stock like Apple, Ford, or Sprint to help build your portfolio. Sign up at floor.robinhood.com. That's floor.robinhood.com. Let's get back into it, Ben. The Heat, Ben. Usman says... What do you guys think of Pat Riley allegedly telling Tom Thibodeau to get your fucking house in order, parentheses, sorry, Elizabeth, and then hanging up the phone on him? And that came in uh, last week, but since then, we've also heard rumors that Tom, Tom Thibodeau tried to add picks to a Jimmy Butler trade at the 11th hour, and apparently... That was uh, on orders from Glenn Taylor. But either way, it it was reported by Jorge Sedano from ESPN that um, Pat Riley just screamed, motherfucker, into the phone and hung up the phone. (laughs) So, uh, yes, Elizabeth, I hope you're not listening to any sort of Pat Riley discussion over the last couple weeks. I love it, okay? I think... Pat Riley fan fiction is sort of all Heat fans have had over the last couple of years. Granted, the teams have actually been kind of fun too, but uh, I will read any sort of rumored um, altercation involving Pat Riley. I'm, I'm here for everything. See, this is one of the things I've always wondered. Like, should trade calls take this long to unfold? Like, don't you think if you were and I were GMs, we could make a blockbuster trade solely via text message within about 10 to 15 minutes. I mean, like how much are you really negotiating here in a Jimmy Butler trade? Like obviously even before they were willing to put Richardson into the deal, Richardson was going to be the piece, right? So like, yeah. Do we really have to have four phone calls where Tom Thibodeau is just like, kind of like flirting with Pat Riley and like trying to like ease him into this conversation, especially when you're Pat Riley's age. Like, I don't know anybody who's Pat Riley's age who necessarily wants to be engaged in like a 45 minute negotiation on the phone, right? It's like Tom Thibodeau is basically like the spam solicitor calling your house. And like, unless you're lonely and like looking for someone to like talk to, you're not really going to engage (laughs) in that scenario if you're Pat Riley's age. So to me, I don't understand, like, how did it get to this point? Why was this not a more straightforward trade situation? And like, I don't think there should be any scenario where Pat Riley feels like hoodwinked by the trade call where he feels the need to like slam a phone and like hang up in anger, right? Yeah, I don't know. I It's funny, you ask about trades. I've thought about that a lot because like a lot of people who love the NBA, I've definitely thought about how I would manage a team. And um, I think, and working from my experience as a fantasy basketball team. <laughs> oh owner, yeah, perfect. <laughs> one of the things... I struggle with is that when I'm really like in the thick of trade talks, eventually I just kind of get bored. And like, if I want Otto Porter on my team, I'll throw in whatever it takes to get the deal done. And I'm not, I'm not enough of an intractable asshole to really kind of 
extract the most value and uh and i think that sometimes it helps to do that and it certainly seems like that's what tibbs is doing um and glenn taylor also but the, to answer your question yeah i think it it definitely shouldn't be taking as long as it has between miami and minnesota it just seems to me like if people were like on the phone bluffing, like Riley's like, oh yeah, I'll give you white side and a 2027 second round pick. Like if you're Thibodeau, you're like, all right, can we just not do this? Can we just like get to having a real conversation? <laughs> and like, don't you think that that would pretty much happen like immediately? Like, I don't feel like these, uh, these overtures, like these early conversations of like, oh yeah, we have to like also include Dang and we have to also include like, you know, all these other stipulations like i feel like that would get punched through very quickly especially in like this trade machine era of the nba where like pretty much everyone knows where the terms are going to be i just first of all this trade should have been done two weeks ago under basically any normal situation it would have been done and uh, i'm glad that pat riley can add his voice to the frustrated choir that's just like basically screaming the timberwolves don't know what they're doing yes um and the Heat, I guess we'll have to wait and see what happens. I think it's gotten so weird between Miami and Minnesota that my bet is that Jimmy ends up somewhere else, um, which honestly would be more fun. Uh, like, I, for the sake of the league, let's just put Jimmy Butler on the Rockets. Let's find a way to make it happen. Call it in. Hey, can but, I ask you a Heat question um, unrelated yes, to this? Quickly. It's a real Heat question. How excited are you for Dwayne Wade's quote unquote hashtag last dance, right? In all of like the, you know, the, the <laughs> retirement excited. ceremony, like, you know, retirement tour, like we saw with Kobe, like, where is it going to stack up? Is it going to be more genuine, more fun? The fan loves, the fans love him down there. Or is it going to be, you know, kind of transparent and hokey? Like, how do you foresee this playing out? Oh, man. I will write a long thing about Dwayne Wade late in the year uh, because I have some complicated emotions to work through. Like, on the one hand, he was just so kind of insincere, like, through the the meat of his prime, and especially with those LeBron Heat teams. He was just such a smug... uh, I don't know. I don't want to curse out Dwayne Wade. But he just... I I loved to hate him. And then over the years, I have come to respect how good he is and how many big moments he has come up huge in, you know? Like, he's just, like, I would say the intangible qualities that people talk about with Kobe Bryant are maybe realer in Dwayne Wade. And so I really do respect him, but I've also loathed him for many years um and uh i'm not looking forward to a year of like farewell d wade but um again i think if you're a heat fan like that's sort of all you got right now it's like that or root for a seventh place team can i tell you one theory along with this uh, real quick when aging superstars start retweeting media writer like media members and writers like you know covering them yep. or their their endeavors or whatever that's the red flag when it's time to hang it up to me you know like if you're still feeling the need to kind of like <laughs> hang on and like hand out the retweets to writers that's if when you're it, talking to us that means you have officially peaked and it's just it's over <laughs> and, yeah and Wade hit that about nine months ago and so I also worry this could be kind of sad I do hold out just a slight hope There'll be a few magical moments along the way, though. I think that the Heat fans are lucky there that he's, be. he's back down there. 
And, you know, if he hits a game winner for them, somehow they make the playoffs and he, and he has another vintage performance like he did that, you know, that one game uh, in last year's playoffs or like he did against Charlotte a few years ago. That will be so special for them. And it's the kind of thing that we've sort of wanted from Dirk here these last couple of years in Dallas. They just haven't been good enough as a team to get there. Um, yeah. But I also don't know if that can carry for a whole season. No. I don't think he's got Kobe's like quotability where there's going to be a lot of times where it's just a drag. There, yeah, but I, I think I guarantee there will be uh, several like weird D Wade magical nights because that's just he keep he he's been washed up for five years now, but he still has those moments where you're like, holy shit! I mean, that's why he's Dwayne Wade. But moving on, the Milwaukee Bucks. Jake says, who among Dante Divincenzo and Pat Connaughton and Sterling Brown and Tony Snell will step up to provide impactful wing minutes behind Brogdon and Middleton? I included this Ben because we've talked so much about Giannis, and we will probably continue to talk so much about Giannis. This is the main reason, though, the Bucks are not actually going to be a threat this year. I think that they can maybe make it to the Eastern Conference Finals, but, like, the front office has just struck out on wings. Can I make one theory for you? And feel free to throw it back in my face. I think a guy like Tony Snell is actually the exact type of player who could benefit from uh, Budholzer's arrival. Now, obviously, Giannis is going to be a huge, you know, benefactor because he's in the middle of everything. There's going to be better space around him. The offense is going to make more sense. There's going to be more ball movement. But if you're a Snell type player where, like, you're not doing anything off the dribble, you're basically a catch and shoot guy, the quality of your looks matter a lot. And then your, your rhythm and your involvement matter a lot. And don't you think Snell is kind of like that stereotypical, like, 2014 15 Hawks wing? You just like throw him out there, you know, he's like kind of quote unquote boring, but like he's effective yeah. and he contributes to a good offense. I think he's got a chance to have a better year this year than he did last year because that was a tough job last year. You know, basically you're just watching other guys dribble forever and then you're throwing up a contested shot against a half court defense that's set. And I and I mean look, I don't think he's gonna have a breakout campaign, but I do think he's better than Pat Connaughton and DiVincenzo and the other names that Jake listed. Yeah, well, this speaks to your Giannis loyalty because the same way you sold the Clippers on behalf of your love for Lee Jenkins, that's how you just sold Tony Snell. And uh, sure, he could be decent this year. I just, yeah, I don't know. Um, I I just think that Budenholzer's system benefits both the main ball handler and the limited supporting cast guys who, like, they need to be in tight roles. Budenholzer gets that. He doesn't ask them to do too much, and he doesn't ask them to do only thankless work, which can sometimes lead to poor results. You know what? And that's a really smart point. I don't mean to belittle it. It's just we're recording this on a Friday night after a really long week of work. Um, But Dante DiVincenzo is another guy who I wouldn't write off entirely. He kind of no-showed at Summer League, and uh, we haven't seen a lot of like positive signs from him as, as someone who can contribute this year. Um, which again, like, I'm not sure why you go that direction when you know you've got a team that's ready to sort of like push for the finals um, now with Giannis because he's like one of the four best players in the league. But such is life. Uh, and you're right that Budenholzer does a great job kind of giving guys simple roles that they can play. And he did a great job of that in Atlanta for the last couple of years. Um, 
On to the Knicks, though. Antonio, a Knicks fan and firefighter in Pennsylvania, says, Last year with the Knicks, I believe they would have snuck into the eighth seed with a healthy KP. Do you think they have enough talent to make any kind of run this year, or will they be tanking after the first month? Uh, I think they will be tanking before the end of the first month. Um, I think that's kind of the mode they're in. I don't know. Do you, when do you think Porzingis comes back? Well, Antonio, thank you for your service. I would say, what, after Christmas probably? I think they're going to take it slow. I think it's going to wind up being not even an intentional tank. It's just a we don't have enough talent tank. Uh, we're trying. like We're playing hard, but we're yeah, just you're not right. good. Uh, and I think that once Porzingis comes back, they're going to try to find uh, whatever the best lineups they can to give him a shot to play meaningful basketball. I don't think you can write this year off for Porzingis. I don't think that you can tank if he's healthy. Um, I also do think, though, if you're already out of the playoff picture, which I would expect, you know, basically to be the case once he comes back, you should carefully manage his minutes. You know, no back to backs, obviously. Don't play him more than like 35 a night. Uh, make sure that he's right for next season. I wouldn't go chasing wins down the stretch, but I also frankly wouldn't tank uh, if he's on the court because you want him to start getting into good habits of winning and he's been in and out of the lineup. He needs to taste some victory too. I don't think you want him being part of a lost season this year. I think that would actually be a mistake. Yeah, I think this is going to be a lost season um, in New York. And I think that they are going to keep Porzingis out until like, mid-March probably and it, in part because the longer you keep him out the more convincing his injury is as an alibi to uh, explain the losing because I think if you brought him back they wouldn't be that much better and um, and so I think it's and it's smart you know I, I think Porzingis is the center of everything and we want him to be as healthy as possible be as cautious as possible and so it's not a it like it makes a lot of sense to to hold him out and they'll bring him back sort of as like proof of life for kd uh going into next summer like okay so porzingis can walk and play basketball um but for now it's just going to be kind of like a, a transitional year and hopefully they land in the top five, and then we'll see what happens from there. Because it can get pretty crazy. Like, if they get a top three pick, that gives them a potential superstar to add through the draft. But that also becomes, like, a, a really interesting trade ship. And the Knicks are kind of capable of anything as soon as this season is over. Yeah, real quick, I don't need a full breakdown. Are you in or out on Fizdale? In. Very in. Um, oh. I think he's going to be great there. Uh, Magic Parker says among all the factors that have contributed to the Magic's lack lack of success over the years what's the biggest factor I think luck Ben I think that they have gotten screwed in almost every lottery for the last like 10 years and uh, they've they always land like two or three spots lower than you'd want to be and they've had to kind of settle for guys including Bamba. I mean, I'm sure there'll be there will be Mo Bamba excitement this year, but Trey Young would have been such a nice fit for what they have and what they've needed for several seasons now. And uh and he went one spot ahead of them to Atlanta, so it's tough. 
Do, does Orlando's owner like listen to our podcast? Are you saying that trying to get a job? Like, are you trying to work in that front <laughs> office? Like, All right, it's, it's very charitable. Look. No, look, it, it's true that like the Abaca trade, there have been some really head scratching decisions over the years. But I, I think part of it is they've been building the foundation with pieces who just aren't quite as good as they could have been had a couple of lotteries gone a little bit differently. No, you're right. If you look at their draft picks and just say like, instead of drafting fifth, you drafted third. Instead of drafting whatever, sixth, you drafted second. Like you can go yeah. back through and build like a sick squad. Like if they had had better luck. I think ultimately, if you were going to pinpoint one mistake that kind of lit, you know made their bed for the, all these years, I think it was basically going all in to get Alfred Payton and then just propping him up as the guy for years because that led to the yes. Oladipo trade. That led to them having a really boring style and probably cost them some ability to attract guys in free agency. That cost them... Uh, you know, a delay in terms of finding a real point guard. They still don't have one. I mean, no disrespect to DJ Augustin, but, you know, disrespect to DJ Augustin. Like, you're not a real point guard. Uh, and I think... <laughs> And I think that that would be what I would circle because uh, uh, the East, <laughs> you know, um, if they had a uh, one point guard at any point over these last six years, uh, or if they had just decided, look, we have to keep Oladipo, they would be in better shape and they would have, uh, you know, clearer structure and everything else. As it stands, they've built their roster as if centers are the only eligible players. And they're like trying to have like the deepest, like widest variety of centers in the NBA. And that's yeah. just not how the league works. It's actually the exact opposite of how the league works right now. And that's a big problem. Yeah, I would be so much more excited about Mo Bamba if he had gone to the Bulls or maybe even the Knicks. Um, but part of why I was intrigued by Orlando's future was the potential of playing lineups with Jonathan Isaac at the five or even throwing Aaron Gordon at the five for, totally. for various stretches. And now you've got Bamba there and it's like, oh, all right, I guess everybody's just going to be seven feet and not particularly athletic. Um, yeah, like the idea of playing, oh, hey, Aaron Gordon's the five now. That's great unless that's... Bamba ha Bamba has to be the two. Like, what are you doing? Like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> something has to give well, here. Like, And I still don't know how I feel about centers, like, kind of orbiting the three-point line. Like, it's cool to be a center and be able to shoot, but, I mean, Bamba has got to be able to do more than just sort of sit out there and hit set three-pointers. Um, so who knows? The uh, I'm very the excited to watch him, though, by the way. Like, okay. I mean, it, you have to talk yourself into this group. There's no question about it. They're one of these East teams where you have to kind of self-coach when you turn their games on. But Bamba <laughs> is just built very, very uniquely, right? And he gives you that wow factor every time he's on the court. You don't know exactly what's going to happen. He doesn't always know what's going to happen. And I think there's just some unpredictability there that always just kind of arrests my attention when I'm watching. There you go. Anyways, Sixers time. Parker says, how important is Ben Simmons' jumper to the Sixers' prospects this year? What about Markel Fultz? What do you think, Ben? Um, I think that Simmons' ability to shoot is what's going to determine whether they can win a title, right? So yes. you have to decide, is that the goal this year, or is it still a year or two early to kind of crown them as like potential championship teams? Now, I think they have a, a 
somewhat of a decent shot to make the finals. Like I think there's basically three teams in the East that can do it. They're one of yep. them. Um, not exactly the hottest take, but if he can't shoot, they're not going to win a title, right? So I think that's fairly important. In terms of Fultz, I would actually say that for what they're trying to get done this year, his jump shot is a more important factor than Simmons's jump shot because Simmons can contribute, can lead, can give you an identity on offense with or without Embiid without being able to shoot. We saw it last year. Fultz can't be a zero. They took Their rotation took a few hits over the summer in terms of guys who are departing, but those guys are going to be a distant memory. Like You're not going to be sit, sitting over there just like sweating the Bellinelli loss or the Ilyasova loss if Fultz comes out here and plays like a number one pick, right? Those guys That's are going to be point. long forgotten. And hopefully he can. Not only that, if Fultz doesn't even have to play like a number one pick, if he's giving them 25 to 30 serviceable minutes as an off guard and and is enough of a shooting threat next to Simmons that he can be out there with Simmons, um, yeah, it's going to be laughable that anyone was ever wringing their hands about Bellinelli. And I've been doing some of that wringing, so I understand that objectively it's ridiculous to fret about losing a guy like Bellinelli. Um, but I also don't think Fultz is there yet. And and Simmons, you're right though. The, the Their jumpers are more important to the Sixers for the next five years than they are for this year because I think having watched both of them throughout the last two weeks of preseason basketball, like Simmons is no different than he was at the end of last season. And Fultz the jumper isn't there. And so it's better to just work from that assumption that you're not going to really be getting much from either of those guys as shooters. And I think the most important X factor for Philly this year is going to be Embiid's health. If if Embiid plays 65 to 70 games, Philly's going to be awesome. And Embiid is going to be in the MVP mix because if he looks great through the preseason. And so uh, if, if he stays on the floor, then the Sixers will be in good shape. And I agree with you. In fact, I agree with you to the point that like, I really don't put other, I think the Celtics are, are massive favorites and the Sixers are the only team that can beat them in the East. Nice. Uh, life coach moment here real quick for Ben Simmons. Cause you mentioned he didn't really come back a different player. It's so easy for players as talented as him to just retreat to the shell of, look, I do so many things. Well, I don't need to worry about what the critics are saying about my flaw. Learn from LeBron. Don't just go on the shop with LeBron and chop it up and, you know, have a fun conversation with Drake and all that. Like actually study what LeBron did when it came to addressing his weaknesses as a player. He didn't bury his head in the sand, right? He said, look, I need to become a much better shooter if I'm going to be a dominant player. Like I'm never going to be the next Steph but I need to be able to hit a three-pointer off the dribble from well behind the three-point line, and I need to be able to hit catch-and-shoot three so the offense can still run, and I need to be a threat that guys have to guard me at the three-point line. LeBron looked himself in the mirror, made those honest conclusions, and then set about spending summer after summer building himself into that type of player. Ben, the clock is ticking, man. You got to do it. You can't come back next year still with no three-point shot and just trying to like retweet and like, you know, make fun of guys like Andrew Sharp who wear the, you know, (laughs) the Ben Simmons is a coward t-shirts. No, it's bigger than that. You need to be able to shoot. Yes, he does. Um, All right. The team we forgot on the last episode, the Sacramento Kings, honorary members of the Eastern Conference. This is actually more appropriate for, 
I hope people are enjoying hearing us try to talk ourselves into some of these teams because it's been a little tough. Jonathan says, what chance does Marvin Bagley have to be as good on offense this year as Anthony Davis was during his rookie season? Will it matter at all? And then Chris says, recently Coach Yeager said that he could have four bigs all playing at once. How terrible will this be? Uh, do you have any thoughts there? It'll be re- really bad. I mean, that's one of the things with Sacramento. <laughs> it doesn't matter how you slice and dice their roster, Andrew, whether you you know, you know put all the young kids in and like, hey, we're going to play everybody under 23 and see what they could do, you know, the young super team, as Vladi likes to call them, or if you want to play all these bigs out of position and just try to like, you know, thwart some mass, uh, matchup advantages. It doesn't matter. Like this roster is bad. They're going to finish ghastly. <laughs> they're going to finish last place in the Western Conference. And um, you know, I do appreciate though the Kings fans with the endless optimism. I mean, Marvin Bagley being the next Anthony Davis on offense. I mean, last week we had a guy who, th- who thought fifty wins might be uh, a possibility. Like I have no idea how Kings fans have kept. Uh, that light on, you know, I've kept that yep. candle burning after so many years. <laughs> but when you look at their roster, I mean, they're going to be playing guys out of position left and right. Uh, Bagley, to me, I don't think he's Jaleel Bagley, like you called him the other day, although that was a pretty sharp diss from you. Um, but, you know, he's going to have a real tricky fit because they don't have a ton of spacing to work around him uh, unless they play him at the five, which I don't think they're probably going to be smart enough to do. Yeah. Um, so there's just concerns and questions up and down with this group. I can't take credit for Jaleel Bagley, by the way. That was something I think I saw Andy Lou. It was either Andy Lou or Sam Esfandiari. And by the way, we're going on the Warriors World podcast uh, Sunday night. So it'll be running sometime, uh, I think probably Monday. Anyways, the um, Bagley stuff, man. I just don't see it with him. I'm sorry. I, I totally understand passing on Luka Doncic at number two. But man, the future in Sacramento would look so much more fun and interesting had they taken a guy like... like If they, if they had Jaron Jackson Jr. next to Harry Giles and then De'Aaron Fox, like you could at least see where things were going. But Bagley, they have like these this glut of tweeners and bad centers and... Bagley doesn't have a position yet. I think if you believe in him and believe that he's going to be a real special offensive player for the next 10 years, then uh, the future isn't quite as dark as it may seem, um, or at, at least as it may seem when national writers are talking about them. Um, but no, It's definitely dark. I mean, what about your, your guy, Trey Young, too? Like, isn't there a situation here where there's like five or six different guys drafted behind Bagley who all wind up having better NBA careers yeah. than Bagley? Like, as much as I've harped on, you know, DeAndre Agent being a, a second-guess pick, I think Bagley definitely has a lot of second guessing potential. And that's a pretty easy call to make because every single Kings pick essentially from the last five or six years, besides Giles, which was a nice move for them is ripe for second guessing. But if you have like a big time point guard, you know, all-star level point guard and Trey young down the road, if you've got Doncic, who's got a high ceiling to, according to a lot of people, and you've also got these other bigs who just make more sense for how the game is being played right now. Um, all picked after your guy that you picked at number two, and you're not really in a position to develop Bagley to his full potential because you don't have a lot of players that complement him and you have no track record of developing basically anybody, um, that should 
you know, really make Vlade's seat as hot as possible. And I realize you probably see what I'm doing. I'm just transferring a lot of what I was saying about Ryan McDonough. Now he's out of the picture, you know, straight onto Vlade Divac. He's probably the, you know, the oh, next remaining, you know, easiest target. A new but... cause for you. Yeah, it may be too easy a target. We may have to think harder about who the new McDonough should be because uh, Vlade may be a little too obvious. But sure, the case is is not hard to make. Exactly what I'm saying. And uh, that's why I think we should, as an open floor podcast, to, in the interest of balance and to keep our strong relationship with Kings fans going, I think we should get all in on Giles. I think that we we should join the stands. You know, we were a little bit like, you know, dancing around with the idea last week when we mentioned it. I think we should just be pro-Giles. We're, we're in. It's a perfect story. There's no downside to it. You know, if, if he's able to make this comeback, you know, it'd be remarkable to come back from multiple knee injuries like he did. Um, and they really need a guy like that. So why not, Andrew? Let's become a Giles fan pod. Sure. I'm in. I like Harry Giles. And uh, the Marvin Bagley thing, the only thing I had to add to what you said is that if you look at the history of number two picks throughout NBA history, it is pretty dark. And it's one of the hardest things to explain, one of the strangest phenomenons throughout NBA history. And all of this is not welcome news for Kings fans. Um, but uh, You know how like 10 minutes ago or 20 minutes ago you were explaining how when you make fantasy trades you just give up and you're like, sure, whatever. That was the same voice you just used when I tried to recruit you to my Giles fan pod. You're like, sure, <laughs> I'm in. Come on, with a little enthusiasm and excitement, Andrew, don't you want to be part of the Giles club? I guess, man. Uh, one more thing on the Kings. We got an email from Dan who said, hey, guys, I have a hot take for you. If Kevin Durant has any guts, he will sign with the Sacramento Kings next year. And then he goes on to make a, a long case for this. And we don't have to get into it because that's insane. But I, I will say, I love, it's a great part of any hot take to say an athlete has to have guts. And uh, I thought that was great. So thank you, Dan. Um, yeah, you'd have to be thinking with your spleen or your gallbladder or something to leave the Warriors for the Kings. I don't some sort of guts. It wouldn't it would be, be th- grounds it, for it would, intervention. <laughs> it would not be thinking with your head or your heart. It would be something else. <laughs> All right, Raptors. We've got Raptors and Wizards, and then we're done. Drew says, "What are the weaknesses with the Raptors this year? They were top five on both sides of the ball last season." Why should we expect them to regress? Is Nick Nurse that big of a question mark? Are there legitimate reasons to doubt Kawhi? Is Lowry still a playoff choker? Why are people doubting the Raptors? And Ben, just quickly here, I almost any time I've seen someone talking shit about our podcast, it's usually a Raptors fan. So we are already kind of on like, dicey ground with Raptors fans and we both said nice things about them earlier in the week but um well look I'd be mad as a country if there these two American bozos were right all the time about us and saw us coming from a mile away <laughs> called the us re- soft chokers and then they got proven correct year after year after year I'd hate us too I just want to be very clear the reasons to doubt the Raptors are that every single player on their team is like 10 to 15 percent overrated Kyle Lowry is not as good as the collective basketball community 
says he is. Kawhi Leonard is not on Kevin Durant's level, and yet there are a lot of people who are Kawhi believers who will tell you that he is. And we'll, we'll go back and say, you know, Kawhi was guarding KD, and he was really good, and like, oh, that was a draw. Like, fuck out of here. No. Preach, preach, wrong. preach. Keep <laughs> and going. Like, preach, and preach. Siakam and OG, like, Siakam is not ever going to be anything close to what Draymond Green was. OG is never going to be Kawhi. Norman Powell is like shouldn't get more than 15 minutes a game. Fred Van Vliet is the only player on their team that is is actually good and is someone who I actually love. But everyone else is just kind of like, yeah, you can have them. They're not bad, but they're not actually going to be great and like so I just think, you know, it's fine to believe in the Raptors, but don't demand that everyone else believes in them too. That's what I'd say. No, I love that. I mean, we liked Fred Van Vliet last year. We sang his praises, and then he like sprained both his shoulders with the game on the line when he was trying to shoot that three pointer, and it was like that didn't was even tough. come within like fifteen <laughs> feet of the hoop. It's like okay, well, I guess you're not going to be Steve Kerr, Jim Paxson this year. Maybe uh, better luck next year. Um, I think you you nailed it marvelously. There's questions about a lot of things. I mean, Kawhi, Kawhi's relationship with Lowry, Kawhi's fit in a new offense, Kawhi's uh, you know defensive impact when he's no longer backed by the Spurs system, uh, his ability to stay healthy. Those are all big questions. And those are questions, by the way, that Boston just doesn't face. And Philly, to a certain degree, doesn't really face those kinds of similar questions. I also think when you're really... So much of your strength comes from your depth and from an awesome second unit that's full of hardworking, overachieving guys, guys who Sharp is always going to discount because they're not, you know, purely talented and, you know, they're not flashy bucket getters. Those guys tend to falter in the playoffs. And, you know, if you hadn't just watched it happen for four years in a row, I could understand why you would say, no, this is this team's going to be different. Depth is going to win out. You kind of buy that Dwayne Casey line from last year of like, why can't we go, you know, 10 deep in the playoffs? Of course it'll work for us. <laughs> it's just not how it goes. And, you know, there's 82 game players and there's 16 game players. There's one guy on the entire roster, and that's Kawhi, who can legitimately be thought of as a 16-game player, and he didn't even show up to watch his team play in the playoffs last year. So why are we expecting him to just roll through the Eastern Conference just, you know, on a lark? You know, I don't see it. So I like that. I, I think Toronto, by the way, has a chance to win more games than they've ever won. I think they have a chance at the one seed. Yeah. I think they should they should they be do. in the Eastern Conference Finals, but they're also just not very likable. Sorry, Canadians. You're much more likable as a people and as a neighbor than your team is. The team has got a surly sidekick in Kyle Lowry. They've got a a wooden figurehead leader in Kawhi Leonard, (laughs) to borrow a phrase that you coined. And, you know, the rest is kind of like meh. You know, well, so- and it's, you know, it's the inferiority complex. And granted, this is the last time we ever record a podcast at the end of a work week on Friday night. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm a little grumpy, but it's no, just Andrew like, Sharp is reporting. Come on. Do it. <laughs> it is. It is sharp reporting here. It's just the Raptors are fine, but let's not kid ourselves about, about what they really are. And I think the, the, the biggest question, because Look, on paper, they should go win 58 to 62 games this year. But the biggest question I have is uh, Lowry and and what he's really going to be. Um, because he wasn't quite himself through most of last year's regular season. And, and granted, some of that was them saving him for the playoffs. And last year 
was the first time he wasn't a complete disaster in the playoffs, so that's progress. But um, his athleticism isn't where it was even two years ago. So that's a it, we'll have to just wait and see. Um, but yeah, here, here's something too, Andrew. Like nobody wants their team to be the cute story team. You know, Boston yeah. fans got so mad at us for like three years straight there when I would just dismiss them as the cute story team. They were the cute story team. They weren't ready to actually make the finals and you know get over the hump and do it. And I am very scared on behalf of the Raptors that they've become this new cute story team, even with LeBron gone, even with Boston facing some of its own questions. Like if your guys don't show up and play to the same level in the postseason and you can't just say, oh, yeah, Lowry had a good postseason. He did on offense. Their defense was a train wreck and he was a part of that. And he's supposed to be an all NBA level defender, uh, you know, in that second round series against uh, Cleveland. Uh, that's that's where the questions and that's where the a- accusations of being an 82 game you know team or player are going to come from. And maybe Nick Nurse winds up being coach of the year and he, and he blows everyone's mind with some new strategic wrinkles. But I I tend to think that Dwayne Casey got just about everything he possibly could out of that roster, and yeah. they overachieved consistently, and that their talent level, especially on the top end, just isn't that great. Yep, I agree with you. Um, and finally, last but certainly not least, first uh, prob- in my heart. <laughs> probably least, though, wouldn't you say? I mean, no. pretty, close, pretty close to least. No, Levi says there are four teams who have never made a conference finals. The LA Clippers, the Charlotte Hornets, the New Orleans Pelicans, and Sharps Washington Wizards. What will it take for the Wiz to make the conference finals? Or maybe the better question, who's more likely to reach an Eastern Conference Finals first, the Wizards or Hornets? Uh, That second question is textbook Eastern Conference sadness, so we're not even going to answer it. Ben, I just want to tell you something. I have been in a dark place with the Wiz for the last couple weeks, Part of it is the fault of the Boston Celtics because I spent time around them and they, you know, it's a smart team. They do all the right things. And then you look at the Wizards and it's like Dwight Howard shows up. Did you see he had an injured butt? Yeah. Oh, no, I missed that, Andrew. Yes, I'm on the (laughs) internet. Well, look, there's just, there's a lot to kind of process. But, uh, and you and I were having a, a text message conversation a couple days ago, and uh, one of our colleagues, Rohan Nutkarni at Sports Illustrated, was like, I kind of like the Wizards this year. And I was like, I don't. Uh, and, and I said, typically, I have an endless reservoir of hope, and it just isn't happening this year. I can't pretend to be excited about this team. But I have good news for you. It is starting to happen. Uh-oh. John Wall looked really solid against the Pistons in a preseason game the other night. And if Wall is going to be good this year, the Wizards are going to be fucking good. And they have players that they can go and they like they have the tools to go after the best teams in this league and push them. Well, well, well. Look who we've found. You're back. <laughs> Washington Sharp is back. Boston Sharp has disappeared for a minute. It's hard to keep up with your multiple personality disorders. 
Uh, just last week, you were poking holes in every aspect of this roster. And so I think what I need you to do to really sell me on the idea that you're being genuine here yeah. is you're going to have to reverse course on a lot of the things that you said about John Wall. And you're basically going to have to say John Wall is going to play like an MVP this year. Because otherwise, no, I don't no, no, see... No, no. I don't really see this happening if it doesn't start with John Wall. They don't have enough around him to carry this, right? Like if he gets injured or if he's 80% or if he's beefing with Bradley Beal or if he's like, you know, throwing, like intentionally throwing pick and roll passes at Dwight's head, which I wouldn't blame him if he did. I mean, unless he's just like just supermanning this thing, how is it going to happen? Well, look, Bradley Beal's really good too, and so is Otto Porter, and they're they're you know Austin Rivers, I mean, like a fun, <laughs> like really good, like they could be five hundred without Wall. I like can last feel year. myself going off the deep end here. Once you once you bring Austin Rivers into it, it's I don't know. Uh, I all I will say is I sincerely believe that if John Wall is good, like the Wiz can hang with anyone outside of Golden State and maybe Houston, and so. I hadn't considered that possibility until watching him against Detroit. And he kind of looked like the old John Wall. He's a little thicker these days. Still not sure why he decided to add 15 or 20 pounds of muscle when his entire game has been built on speed. But um, there you go. Some some people like to go the LeRon Landry direction. Uh, but I am really excited for opening night. Wizards Heat next Thursday. It's going to be great. And for now, uh, that's it. I need need a prediction from you. Wins, seed, and then how far are you going in the playoffs? And this is the real, this is not the fake bracket that you like to make where, you know, the Wizards go to the finals and beat the Warriors. And you would would claim you were kind of with them the whole way. We know how you like to kind of, you know, hedge. I want wins. How far are you going in the playoffs? uh, And what seed? 49 wins. Ooh. Fifth place, first round series, Sixers Wizards, where I lose my mind in the middle of a war with the rights to Ricky Sanchez Sixers fan community. Surprisingly optimistic and yet somewhat reasonable. I'm not sure you're going to get to 49 wins, but the rest of it sounded, you know. <laughs> but I- war with Sixers fans online uh, is certainly plausible, so... Well, I'm rooting for that as opposed to like the Celtics knocking you out in five because I think that one would actually hurt more deeply because you tend to like the pain when it comes from Philadelphia. (laughs) Your masochism really just kicks into like high gear. So let me just say, I'm rooting for exactly what you predicted. That would be a fun season. It might not lead to the blowing up of the core, which is definitely what needs to happen there in Washington. But uh, I don't think you're being completely ridiculously uh, overly homerish here. I, th- I think that has a chance. All right. Well, on that note, we will be back later in the week. This has been quite a journey. Uh, thirty teams, thirty questions, and um, yeah. Until yeah. then, send us some mail. Open floor mail. Basketball's back. Okay. Quick note to the Portland people: I will be up at the Moda Center for opening night. Lakers. I was Blazers. wondering whether you're going to go to that. That's awesome. I'm so excited. I can't wait. I know the Blazer Maniacs are going to bring it, Andrew. If you want to see what a real fan base looks like, a fan base that doesn't just cheer for dollar off chicken like the Washington fans, <laughs> you watch these Blazers fans on opening night, okay? Well, it's going to be look, rowdy. Thir- Blazers Lakers will be almost as cool as Heat Wizards on Thursday. So <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> it'll be fun to compare our experiences. 
I can't wait. Um, it's so nice to have the games back. And guys, thanks for sticking with us through this 30 questions, 30 teams preview. We appreciate all the help. Go ahead, email us, openfloormail at gmail.com, openfloormail at gmail.com. And don't forget, ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts really help us. So go ahead and give us those five-star reviews. Just search for our page, Open Floor. It's two words. Scroll down when you get there and go to the rate and review section. Tap five stars. It's just that easy. Andrew. Until later this week, I will talk to you. All right, man. Take it easy. Another great edition of Open Floor is in the books. Did you know Locked On has a daily podcast for all 30 NBA teams? If you're a Lakers fan, search Locked On Lakers. A Celtics fan, search Locked On Celtics. Warriors fans, search Locked On Warriors. Yes, all 30 NBA teams have a daily bite-sized podcast on the Locked On Podcast Network. Search on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts for Locked On, your favorite team. Or tell your smart speaker to play podcasts, Locked On, your favorite team. It's the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.